Welcome to an O'Connor Institute and Civics for Life conversation with Dr. Anthea Hardig. I'm Liam Julian with Civics for Life. Dr. Hardig is the director of the National Museum of American History. Before that, she was uh, she led the Western Office of the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the California Historical Society. So Great. welcome. Thank, Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, so so interesting. Um, we talk about the purpose of museums. Um, there are there are several um, people can go to have an experience with art or an encounter with mastery um, but we think about the classical origins of museums and the Romans especially collecting objects about a culture sure. to tell a story right. and it occurs to me that the museum that you now lead is maybe the the primary example of this in the country uh, if exactly. not the world. well thank you for those classical references Liam and you think about American history as one of the, the longest of running of the Smithsonian collection. So it's not the oldest museum, right. but it has some of the very first collections that were brought in. And I like to joke, if it's not a critter or an airplane, chances are good. It right. ended up in American history, right? From the history of printing to the history of medicine, from musical instruments um, to kind of the remarkable political, military histories, cultural histories, social histories. So it's a it's an amazing honor to do that, to collect, and to think about the original meaning of the word curate, mm -hmm. or curate, if you were uh, in uh, early modern uh, Britain, and that means to take care of, right? So you, a curate was a pastor, took care of the soul, and then, of course, curators take care of the objects that tell our stories of, of who we have been. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's a really, it's a civic mission. Very much so. The, the question though, right, comes, you, you're telling a story, you're telling the American story. Mm -hmm. but stories. Stories, that's, that's the question. Yeah. So I, that you, yeah. you, you can do this by yourself. <laughs> no, um. no, 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 it's much more fun to do uh, with you. Yeah, but that's the question is whose who's story, who's stories you, you know, and how right. do you make Whose sure voices, that anyone right. that comes into the, the museum feels that their story is right. being told there? Right, so the, the kind of the art and craft and science and of course the humanity of of museum work revolves around that very question is whose stories are we telling who sees themselves reflected yeah. in our work and you do that really by understanding what is omitted from the historic record so the importance of oral histories like the ones that the Institute have, have, have completed can fill in some of those blanks right and then many cultures of course do not have the, the deep bench of materials that help us then form an object-based uh, collection. So we think about the ways in which we tell those stories through both others' eyes, but also then trying to get that first voice interpretation as well. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of Justice O'Connor, we're so fortunate in that um, we have multiple museums, but especially American history, mm -hmm. has some of her most cherished objects that she so you know lovingly gifted the Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. So what can we learn about the judicial robe she took from Arizona, right, to be her first judicial robe, a woman of the West recycling her own robe, um, hemming it, of course, to skirt length uh, for the first time in the history of the court. And what can we say about her um, as her deep devotion, of course, to civics and civic engagement and civic learning and understanding, as she did, the importance of that civic participation. Mm -hmm. She is the three branches of government, right? She mm -hmm. understands yeah. then 
how those are woven in together, as, as I like to say, into the tree of liberty. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. In, in, in many ways, museums, as you're pointing out, have become sort of our civic spaces. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a neutrality there. Yeah. Okay. Universities to some extent, but that's enclosed. That's mm -hmm. sort of an enclosed mm -hmm. environment. Um, right. To, to what degree do you see your mission at the institution that you run mm -hmm. as being to um, foster a place to have that civil discourse? Uh, well, that's a wonderful question. So our new mission is empowering people to create a more just and compassionate and informed future um, by interpreting and sharing and collecting the past. So giving people those spaces especially since the Smithsonian as a public-private partnership doesn't charge admission and literally anyone can come in and about three to four million people a year do come in and then last year about 12 million people engaged with us online. Mm. It is a kind of a great equalizer. Mm -hmm. We could be standing next to each other, we could be from very different places in our lives and have very different community and familial um, experiences and backgrounds. We could be standing next to each other looking at Lincoln's top hat the night he was killed at Ford's Theater. Right? We could be focusing on an object and on a story that then I think kind of helps unite us in understanding our past. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that as convening spaces and as civic and civil spaces, sure. right? right? it's interesting to see what happens to people when they come into a museum, uh, yeah. like a courtroom. I have a way I walk. There's there's a museum walk, yeah. there's kind of a museum posture probably, yeah. Yeah. but there also may be kind of a museum attitude, mm -hmm. right, where you come in and you think, I am here, so I am someplace different. Yeah. And I, I feel that when I, when I walk into the chambers of the Supreme Court, which I've been so honored to do, um, when I walk into one of our storage rooms that the public doesn't get to go into, or when I'm down on the floor with a bunch of somewhat rowdy eighth graders who are coming from all over the country to learn about American history in what really is, uh, I think, one of the nation's largest history classrooms. It gives me that same sense of, of both appreciation and gratitude, but also that kind of sense of hope, yep. right? That you see people who are willing and open to learn and who have come together in a space like the Smithsonian. Yeah. It's so interesting because you're talking about, we're talking about physical things, physical mm -hmm. spaces, physical objects. Well, Dr. Hardig started her role um, in uh, February of 2019, right? Yes. And so yes. a year later, all of a sudden, physical spaces and physical objects, you had to make a major pivot there. Right. And I wonder if what you learned in terms of both the, the benefits, the, um, the, the possibilities, and also mm -hmm. the limitations when it comes to museums mm -hmm. in the virtual space. Sure. You know. So no one's really prepared to lead through a global pandemic, right? You rely on your instincts and your colleagues and your supporters um, and your leader, your fellow leaders to chart a path forward. Yeah. And museums are very place-based yeah. organizations. Yeah. So we completely um, changed the way in which we approached museum curation and historic uh, collecting and tried to keep people safe right? mm -hmm, and then sure. tried to to document things as they were happen mm -hmm. uh, as they were happening rather and so I like to say to use a 19th century or 18th century metaphor that we I think all of us who live through especially 2020 but also into 2021 and 2022 but let's just take that first year yeah 
it felt like we were in the grist mill of history, like we could kind of feel history happening. And so I like to say that we document the grist and the mill equipment, mm -hmm. right? So that you try to get a sense of the totality of what we were experiencing um, as Americans and of course joined globally in a, um, in, a, in a pathogenic way, but also I think in a global community. So it challenged the very way in which we work and it, we relied in a way more on people's trust. It's like, will you save that for us? Will you save that mask? Will you save um, that, you know, the first vial of the mm -hmm. vaccine that was given? You know, will you kind of hold that? And I like to think now in hindsight that we brought more people kind of into the curation moment. Okay. Because oftentimes they would, they would say, you know, I'd like to give this to the Smithsonian. We right. go through our process we accept that into the collection but it's a very kind of face-to-face -face, i'm meeting you you know you have this object from arizona mm -hmm. i'm interested in collecting it and so the pandemic interrupted all of that but i think it brought us closer together to individuals who were understanding their own role in history that mm -hmm. we all have to play and going forward the sort of what you learned from that as mm -hmm. far as bringing the museum's collection to people virtually mm -hmm. um, what are the things that you're that you want to continue doing? Mm. What are some things that you right. tried that you felt as a museum just didn't work as well? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it depends on which part of the pandemic and then which part of the broader kind of digital landscape yeah. that we're um, we're talking about. But you know, like the O'Connor Institute, online education for so many became so critical as we we moved first and pivoted. Uh, to really beefing up our programs for teachers and for parents and for right. students who right. all of a sudden were learning online far more in a structured way, far more than they had. So we certainly made a lot of adjustments there. Um, we also realized that teachers in particular were not looking for something they had to spend half an evening from you know pre their precious hours, you know, from 9 p.m. to midnight and kind of curating themselves, what they really wanted was our help in saying, this is a unit on the Constitution, or this mm -hmm. is a unit mm -hmm. on the civil rights, or, yeah. you know, so it was less, it was more kind of about helping them package online teaching uh, tools. Yeah. Okay. And, and then, of course, we also worked very hard in our own neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., and across the nation to realize that many students, of course, didn't have internet access. Yeah, exactly. So we did a lot more printed material that we distributed locally. Mm -hmm. uh, we had shared pickup points that people, um, teachers could come in the DC public schools to pick up and private schools as well. And so we learned a lot about you know, how the discrepancies of our society, of course, then were reflected in access to education. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. Um, the museum, as, as a civic and civil space, mm -hmm. is sort of, uh, there's a tension in the sense that it wants to be relevant, mm -hmm. but yet it wants to also, I think, have a certain remove from whatever sure. is happening mm -hmm. immediately in society. Right. That's because a big it, challenge. Because yeah. it wants mm -hmm. us to have a perspective right. on that that's historical. Right. So how do you navigate that? Uh, it's a wonderful question, right, especially now when um, a lot of the conversation is about presentism, right? About how we judge the past through the lenses yeah. of the present. And I, I think that we can avoid those conversations by really thinking about the ways in which our roles as stewards of the American experience 
rely sometimes on our swiftness, like if we don't collect that, it will be gone because mm -hmm. it's very ephemeral, mm -hmm. or especially in the digital space, that it is only born digital. It has no physical manifestation. So thinking about our responsibilities there. Um, but then also having that, um, both kind of the courage and the caution to think when, when do we cross those lines, right, into um, going against our core mission, right, about empowerment, right, focusing on the audience, focusing on the people, yeah. instead of focusing on ourselves. And, and that's a challenge, as historians and curators, you know, love to talk about their own scholarship and their yeah. own interpretations, yeah. and we rely on that, but it's mediated through objects and then really, I think, produced and, and created um, with respect for the communities that we're working with um, and that we're documenting, right? Uh, and really kind of honoring the fact that we, we are in the, we're, we're kind of in this for the long game, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? We know that if we don't collect that 20, 50, 100 years, 250 years from now, um, that the nation's kind of collective memory will be poorer for it. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. Um, you know, it's funny because, you know, your, your institution, certainly American museums also just generally are very different, I think, in many cases than the European counterparts. Mm -hmm. uh, the European, European museums in many cases were established with a collection that already existed from right. Imperial. Right, but, sure, but when we, Imperial. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. but we talk about American museums, it really is a civic enterprise. Everything is donated to you, or Absolutely. someone gives you money to go, funds to right. go and, and buy these things, right? right? So right. it really is a community. It is very different. Yeah. It's still kind of a nation state's museum, right, if you think right. about that. It's a federal, right. on federal land mm -hmm. and with federal appropriations that are you know, matched by private dollars. But I think you're right, there is that, there's that kind of remarkable gift that you know, the, the bastard son of an English lord, James Smithson, yes. decided that if his only heir died, that he yeah. would give his fortune to the very young United States. Yeah. I mean, the United States is kind of barely crawling in the 1830s. And he had never visited he the United never, States, is that right? never been. But That's he incredible. believed that, I think he believed that if he had been born in the colonies, mm -hmm. uh, or then the young republic, that he would have been treated differently. Yeah. Right, that yeah. his, it would have been less about his peerage and more about his person. Yeah, right? yeah. And less about, you know, his birth status and more about his capacities. And mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, thinking of that gift and really creating an institution that's devoted to the increase and diffusion of knowledge is a wonderful touchstone. If we're ever lost in our mission at the Smithsonian, you just have to think, increase diffusion of knowledge. Just yeah. keep on repeating it, yeah. you know, yeah. and it, uh, it informs so much of what we do. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Dr. Hardy, thank you so much oh for spending goodness, some time you. with thank us. You. This Thanks has been you great. To the Institute yeah. and um, one of the women I admire the most in the entire span of United States history, Justice Sandra Day. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you.